Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of LawPod. I'm Amanda Kramer and I'm joined today by three human rights heavyweights, Professor Monica McWilliams, Professor Colin Harvey, and Professor Bryce Dixon. All of our guests today are experts in the field of human rights and have engaged significantly with the Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland throughout their careers. For those listeners who don't know much about this topic, the creation of a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland was envisaged in the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement of 1998. This is a peace settlement which was reached in multi-party negotiations that officially marked the end of the conflict of the previous 30 years in Northern Ireland. Section 4 of the Good Friday Agreement, under the heading of Rights, Safeguards and Equality of Opportunity, states that the new Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission will be invited to consult and to advise on the scope for defining a Bill of Rights, that these rights will be supplementary to those rights that are contained in the European Convention on Human Rights, that the Bill of Rights will be designed to reflect the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland, while also drawing on appropriate international instruments and international experience, and that these additional rights will reflect the principles of mutual respect for identity and the ethos of both communities, as well as the parity of esteem. The creation of a Bill of Rights was intended to act as one of the many safeguards in the Good Friday Agreement, to ensure that all sections of the community could participate and work together successfully in the operation of the new institutions that were established under the agreement, and also that all sections of the community would be protected. So the protections under the Bill of Rights were really intended to be significant. The Good Friday Agreement states that neither the Assembly nor any public bodies could infringe on any of the rights that were contained in a Bill of Rights, and that any key decisions and legislation would have to be proofed to ensure that they didn't infringe any of the rights that would be contained in the Bill. In line with the duties outlined in the Good Friday Agreement, on the 1st of March 2000, the Human Rights Commission launched a major consultation process on a Bill of Rights. According to the Commission itself, this consultation involved several major public events, a large-scale advertising campaign, capacity-building exercises, and direct engagement with dozens of community organizations. Thousands of people were involved in this consultation process. Led by Chief Commissioner at the time, Monica McWilliams, who's here today, the Commission submitted its formal advice on a Bill of Rights to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland on the 10th of December in 2008. This advice included detailed proposals of how rights contained in the European Convention on Human Rights and the Human Rights Act could be supplemented. Despite this, according to the Commission, the form of a possible Bill of Rights has been debated vigorously, but very little progress has been made towards the adoption of the instrument. 
All of our guests today have worked as commissioners on the Human Rights Commission and have worked directly on establishing a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Professor Bryce Dixon was the first Chief Commissioner of the Human Rights Commission, acting from 1999 until 2005. Professor Monica McWilliams picked this up from him, working as the following Chief Commissioner from 2005 until 2011. And at the same time, Professor Colin Harvey was also a Commissioner for the Human Rights Commission. Um, working specifically on the Bill of Rights Committee. So thank you all for joining us. Um, could you each go around and tell us a little bit about yourselves? I'm Bryce Dixon. As Amanda has said, I was the first Chief Commissioner of the Human Rights Commission for the, the six-year period, 1999 to 2005. We worked hard on the, the Bill of Rights campaign, did lots and lots of consultation and produced our own draft advice, really, in 2001, which didn't go down too well. Uh, more of that later. Um, since leaving the Commission, I've been uh, working at Queen's University as a Professor of International and Comparative Law. Great. Thanks, Bryce. Uh, Monica? I'm Monica McWilliams. I was at the peace negotiations in 1998, where the proposal to uh, scope the advice for a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland was inserted into that Good Friday Agreement. And then I later followed Bryce as the Chief Commissioner for Human Rights, um, picking up where Bryce left off, handing me over all his work and building on all the consultation that had gone before, working with the 10 commissioners, including Colin, um, extremely hard in those years so that we could meet the deadline of December 10th, 2008, which was a historical day and that it was also the day 50 years later that the Universal Declaration on Human Rights had first been drafted. My name's Colin Harvey. I work in the School of Law at Queen's. I'm a professor in the School of Law at Queen's. I'm also a former head of uh, the Law School at Queen's. I served as a commissioner on the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and was involved in the process of submitting the advice on a Bill of Rights and continue to be involved in work uh, looking at the Bill of Rights and, and how it can be realised in practice. Great, thank you. Um, so thank you again for all of you joining us today. Let's get into some questions. So if each of you wouldn't mind, what, what does the Bill of Rights mean to you? For me, the Bill of Rights means a document that guarantees in our law rights that are not currently protected. And the fact is that with the Human Rights Act coming into effect in the year 2000, having been put through Parliament just about the same time as the Good Friday Agreement was being um, decided, um, we, we've, we've had the protection of those convention rights since the establishment of our Executive and Assembly in Northern Ireland. So a Bill of Rights needs to supplement that in some way. And um, one of the difficulties that there has been in the process of determining what should go into the Bill of Rights is what are the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland, because that was meant to be the main criterion in the Good Friday Agreement to decide what should be in the Bill. And I think the mistake which my own commission made, and possibly Monica's commission as well, I'll let her speak for herself, was to adopt um, an overly wide interpretation of the phrase particular circumstances of Northern Ireland, because we thought that in doing so we could achieve the optimum Bill of Rights. I've now had second thoughts myself, and I think uh, we should be less ambitious and restrict the Bill of Rights to things that are clearly identifiable as particular to Northern Ireland. 
and I noticed it in the recent draft agreement which was leaked uh, between the parties uh, back in February of this year after the, the talks broke down there is a commitment to set up a committee to look at what should be in a Bill of Rights according to the the faithful interpretation of the phrase particular circumstances of Northern Ireland. So it seems that the two big parties in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin and the DUP, are following that line of going back to a narrower meaning of particular circumstances. Bill of Rights, for me, was very much a transitional justice mechanism. Uh, We had been in a conflict for 30 years, um, particularly over the issue of civil rights and human rights. Um, fought over political and civil rights, but actually also on social and economic rights. And so in order never to have a reoccurrence of that conflict, you need to make people feel safe, secure in their entitlements, in their allegiances and in their identity. And those for me were the issues that any Human Rights Commission would be asked to address, drawing down on the international instruments. Um, At the time, we wouldn't have known that the European Convention was ever going to be questioned. Um, Even the Human Rights Act and the issue of the jurisprudence at the European Court, all of which has been a safety net for Northern Ireland for the past years since we signed the agreement and all of which are now being questioned by the current Conservative government. So I think it was really important that we drafted that advice in the way that we did. The beauty of the advice, and this is where I would disagree with uh, Bryce, is that the civic society sectors stood up and were behind us in solidarity, which was really important that people felt a sense of ownership from people who were disabled, from the women's sector, the older people, um, the victims. If they don't see themselves in a Bill of Rights, it's not the People's Bill of Rights. It's to hold the government to account. And it doesn't matter if you're ever again a majority minority, a Bill of Rights is for everyone. Northern Ireland these days has totally changed place. There's no such thing as majorities. And therein lies the difficulty for the political parties. I don't think any government ever wants to have a Bill of Rights under its auspices because they are the ones who are going to be held to the highest possible standard. So it's for a Human Rights Commission to draft that and not to go for the lowest possible denominator which is what, under my commission, the commissioners felt we should draft it according to those international standards and not lower than that. We should also address the particular circumstances that weren't just about a war, but also included people like minorities. And that's what we did. So it's over to the political parties now, as Bryce said. I was glad to see that um, they did agree to establish this working party. But I actually don't think they will come to much consensus anytime soon on what constitutes the particular circumstances. They're very divided. And that's why I would say that the Westminster government, who were meant to legislate on this, after we had handed over the advice to the Secretary of State, parked it on a shelf in 10 Downing Street, and there it has sat ever since. I'd like, like to start an- answering that by paying tribute to the two people in the room this afternoon. Um, It's been an absolute privilege and pleasure during my academic life and life beyond the university to work with both Monica and Bryce. They're both legends of the world of human rights and equality, and they've both thought about human rights and equality in a university context, but they've also, more importantly, worked for human rights and equality um, beyond the university, and it's been an absolute privilege 
to have the opportunity to work with both of them in, in different contexts. In terms of what the Bill of Rights means for me, um, I grew up, I was born in Derry in 1970, so in a sense I'm one of the generation who lived through the consequences of what's happening here in the 1960s. And the idea of human rights and bills of rights and civil rights very much resonated in in, in my childhood and, and growing up. And, and really, Bill of Rights is part, part of that. Really, it's a promise that we make to a future generation that we're not going back to the place that we've come from. I now have two daughters, an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, and I want to see them growing up in a better place, in a society that's radically different from the society uh, that I grew up in. And part of that for me is a, a Bill of Rights. A Bill of Rights is part of the answer to that question. We're thinking in the weeks ahead about 20 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. We're thinking about 50 years on from the Civil Rights Movement, the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights this year. We're, we're thinking very much about human rights futures. Now, the Good Friday Agreement had a specific mandate around the Bill of Rights. And like all these things, there's scope for reasonable disagreement around that. But in a sense, I think, if you're asked to provide advice, one of the things that you do is you look around the world, you speak to people, and you see what other places are doing. And I think the, the advice from the Commission and the work that the Commission had done and the work that everybody else had done was very much based on international and comparative experience. And many of the things that entered the document in 2008 are things that have found a home in human rights protections elsewhere and around the world. So in some senses there was nothing surprising in what emerged in 2008. It was a statutory body given advice based on the remit in terms of the terms of that remit and fulfilling that, that, that mandate. And in many ways, many of the, the proposals were, were rather unsurprising given what's happening in the wider world. So the question I have, right, and this, this is probably a very personal question about any process in life that you're involved in. What do you do, right? Do you, do, you, do you pitch into that process the lowest possible ask that you think may get through and may not even get through? Or do you try to be ambitious for the area that you're working in? And I suppose there's a sense in which... Uh, in all sorts of ways, people are talking about this society in terms of ambition. And I suppose the question I have is, why can't we be ambitious for human rights and equality? Why can't... There was once a time when we all spoke about being ahead of everyone else. And I think, why can't we return to that spirit again? But I suppose the main point would be, I think the Human Rights Commission in 2008, building upon all the work that Bryce and Monica and others have done, submitted advice based on the remit and many of the things that are in there are unsurprising when you look around the world. So picking up on those themes of level of ambitiousness, um, Bryce, did you want to make a contribution? I'd like to pick up, well first of all thanks to Colin for those kind words, but I'd like to pick up both his reference to um, the lowest possible um, type of Bill of Rights or Monica's reference to the lowest common denominator. I'm not at all saying that we need an absolutely minimalistic Bill of Rights. What I am saying is we don't need an approach to the Bill of Rights which says nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. 
which has been the bane of our existence in Northern Ireland, I think, over the last 20 or 30 years, and is today at the moment with the, the political impasse. We need to move, move forward incrementally if we're to move forward at all on a Bill of Rights. Because despite the, the hours and days of work which the Commission has put in over the years, we're no closer to a Bill of Rights uh, today than we were back in the year 2000 when the campaign was launched. But more than that, I think there's a difficulty with a kind of list approach to the protection of human rights. First and foremost, because if certain rights aren't included in, those, in that list, they become, as it were, second-class rights, and it takes forever to get them included. Uh, but, uh, as well as that, having a list kind of freezes the, the human rights picture at the particular moment that the list is agreed. And it kind of encourages judges, when they're interpreting that document, to do so in the light of the circumstances that were, that were pertinent at the time that list was drawn up, rather than look at it in a more active and, and forward-looking way. So I'm in favour of a document that will focus in on issues to do with Northern Ireland, such as the right to truth for, for victims, um, the, uh, the right uh, of particular language users, Irish and Ulster Scots, but particularly Irish, they need to be improved. Um, and very importantly, and something which I think was omitted from the advice to the government back in 2008, uh, the right to integrated education. If there's one particular circumstance in Northern Ireland that differentiates us from the rest of these islands, it is that uh, certainly from the rest of the UK, it is that our education system is segregated and we're in danger of perpetuating our conflict between communities for as long as we educate our children in separate schools. So picking up on those themes of your kind of visions of what a Bill of Rights would be, what do you think would be important to include? We obviously have the 2008 um standard of what would be included but what has have your opinions changed as to what you think should be in there what are the key rights issues that you think would be included or should be included in a bill of rights i'm very proud of the advice that we handed over and we deliberated for all of our years six years that we were there this is not something you draft easily as the Americans, if you went back all those years, as you would know, uh, would tell you when they first drafted their bill. And of course, it can be amended later, given circumstances, as you also know, in terms of what they didn't take account of when they first drafted it. But we had to take account of everything that went before us and all the submissions that were made under Bryce's time. And again, I would pay tribute to Bryce for having had the biggest participation exercise that was ever undertaken in Northern Ireland in relation to that Bill of Rights. There's never been one since. Um, and people's expectations were raised that this would be taken forward based on what they had submitted. And they had very carefully been trained and sat down and thought about it. So I wouldn't call it a list. Um, we never thought of it like that. We thought of it as what should be in here and what may not go in. And it's very important for people to remember that we were also criticised when we eventually handed over that advice for not having taken it further. And it wasn't just on the issue of integrated education. There would be many who thought we hadn't done enough on children's rights and women's rights. Um, 
And we did what we did based on the reflection of the particular circumstances for which we had a very strict methodology. And we had that discussion in the Bill of Rights Forum that had come out of the Good Friday Agreement's implementation where political parties and civic society were meant to interact and deliberate and they didn't come to a successful conclusion either because they didn't have enough time or issues came in that shouldn't have been thrown in. And on the issue of integrated education, I am a champion of that. I am a promoter of integrated education, but I think that's a policy uh, decision. The right to education is in the European Convention incorporated into Human Rights Act. So how do you provide that education is a very much a policy direction. And that is where I think it is left to the executive and they haven't championed it. And that is where they should be criticised. I'm glad to see that some of the jurisprudence recently went back to the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and hence has criticised the executive and have argued that they should have done more on those schools and currently are so doing. And the integrated sector have told me they're very pleased that my own party at the time, the Women's Coalition, put that in. So the question now is, where do we go from here? Um, and there will be political discussions. We were completely mindful that this instrument was our advice as a Human Rights Commission, upholding the international standards and reflecting on the particular circumstances. It is over to politicians. But here's the political point I would make now, having watched the reforms on policing. I was a member of that first Legislative Assembly and Patton's Commission on Policing Reforms were being discussed and debated. It would never have passed through that Assembly. It was done by Westminster through legislation because justice and policing were not devolved. And I am so glad that they weren't because we would never have seen the light of day of the Patton recommendations had it been left to the local politicians because of the divisiveness. Is the same question to be asked about a Bill of Rights by both the Labour government and the Conservative government? I think both of them could be strongly criticised for saying, we don't want to handle it, throw it down in there to the Stormont Parliament buildings and let them fight over it. That's not a way to proceed. Let's see now if they ever do get the opportunity. And I think they should be sitting now when the Assembly and government's arrangements are unstable. The party should be in there, around the table, on something that they might find some agreement on. And at least it would get them, as I discovered as an academic later when I went back to the university and went back to the parties and asked them, did they understand what human rights did and discovered unbelievably in this country that they did not understand the jurisprudence, the role of the executive, the role of the judiciary. That's where you start. So it seems to me you take them out of this, you train them, you bring them to institutions like this university, my own at Ulster University, and say, OK, we're just going to spend a week with you now explaining what human rights can and cannot do. And then you go back and get back into your capacity building workshop and see if you can take this forward. In terms of the, the, the rights issues, again, and in terms of the advice, they've been involved in a project recently. Monica's also been involved in with Anne Smith from Ulster University of turning the 2008 advice into a piece of legislation. I think one of the things from going out and talking to people about that draft piece of legislation coming out of that project has been that, that much of the advice stands up in terms of the, the, the test of, of time. I think there's, there's three things that, that, that are worth highlighting. One is I think that the advice faced into 
issues around equal citizenship here and how you do that in human rights terms, in terms of British and Irish identity here. And I think that is going to become more and more relevant as the Brexit debate progresses in the weeks and months and and years ahead. So I think the equal citizenship section of that uh, advice has been underexplored, I think, and become more and more relevant in the time ahead because I think there's a lot of things around these islands that people think are legally tied down that are not. I think strong equality clause, for example, I think would be important in any Bill of Rights. We're seeing debates, for example, around gender equality, but other areas as well. And I think having a strong equality clause is important. But I think the big issue for for me and the advice that I think is important and will be important in the years ahead is socioeconomic equality and socioeconomic rights and giving them their rightful place in a human rights document. And I think at the moment that socioeconomic rights have a second class status within the human rights debate here and that needs to be radically addressed. I think in the city that I'm from and in the city that we're recording this in Belfast, there are children born today uh, and the script for their lives is written from the moment of their birth, uh, from their postcode and where they're brought up and live. Uh, We have many sharp-elbowed middle-class and upper-class communities in Northern Ireland who are able to rig the system, I think, and have sharp elbows in their favour. And I think without a strong framework of protection of human rights, including socioeconomic rights, remember part of the, the, the civil rights argument in the 60s as well, I think those children's lives are going to be written out in advance. And I think we need to confront that, we need to deal with that, and we need to deal with that through a Bill of Rights. Because one part of a Bill of Rights, for me, is setting out a secure framework of human rights protection in the context of a peace process. I actually welcome the fact that this draft agreement document on Eamon Malley's website, whatever the veracity of it, um, takes us beyond the, 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 the appalling language of paragraph 69 of the Stormont House Agreement, which sort of noted there was a lack of consensus and then sort of wandered off onto some kind of uh, language that we're, off, we're very familiar with here but leads nowhere in reality. One of the things that's been missing from the process so far has been focused political negotiation by the politicians, because in a sense, Bryce and Monica and many of us, we've all done our bit, we've done our work, we've, we've pitched in, we've given the advice, we've looked around the world. Uh, it's time for the politicians in this society to step up to the plate, to show a bit of leadership and to get around the table, wherever that is, to talk about the details of this stuff, to actually pay us the respect of reading the documents that we all have been working on for the last 20 years, uh, which hasn't been done so far, wasn't done in the Bill of Rights Forum. So although it's very disappointing in some respects to see the language of the draft agreement, whatever its status is, at least it keeps the flame of the Bill of Process, Bill of Rights process alive. And if it means our politicians are finally going to step up to the plate, show a bit of leadership, talk about this stuff, read our documents, then that's a welcome step. And uh, let's bring down to some basics, because the Commission was um, criticised by unionists in particular um, about having gone too far. Um, at one stage, all of the parties were for a Bill of Rights. Some would argue, if you go back to Sheila Murnan's day in the 60s, were she first put forward the idea of a Bill of Rights, we wouldn't have been in the mess that we had ended up in if they had been paid attention and there had been some judicial oversight of making sure those rights were upheld. They never were. So we had to come back to it 50 years later. When we first started this work, 
the parties, political parties, unions parties were on a roller coaster up and down for it one day against it the next. Uh, for the unions, I think the legacy of civil rights that Colin refers to with this week being the murder of Martin Luther King is very significant because it led to the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and the struggle for housing votes and jobs. And for unionists, there's always been a niggling fear that that's where the whole proposals for human rights came from. So they see it as a bit of a stick rather than a carrot for the way forward. Um, in fact, in some discussions, with, indeed with Mike Nesbitt, who was the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party at one stage, I said to him, but this also will be a protection for you someday, um, irrespective of the constitutional arrangements, um, because the, irrespective of the demography, of who outnumbers who in terms of Catholics or Protestants, Nationalist Unionists. This instrument, this Bill of Rights, will uphold your rights um, and it should uphold the rights of anyone, irrespective of what identifier they come from. And that's the issue for me, is that that's where the governments in many ways have let us down. And in particular, I think the British government. Um, it was meant to oversee the progress on this. It dropped the ball. It did an absolute, um, what I would call a pretty much an insult to the Human Rights Commission in its consultation after we handed over the advice. It produced a consultation document with, I think, about three rights in it. Um, the right to be British or Irish and actually, surprisingly, of all of them, which tells you about the political direction, was the right of um, ex-prisoners um, not to have a criminal record held against them. Um, a very surprising one that they were consulting on. We had written in, actually, under the equality piece that, irrespective of criminal record, they had entitlements and had thought we'd taken care of that. Um, and that was the second one. And to be honest, the document was so poor that it never went anywhere. Um, so if that's as much of a... Um, uh, an action that they could take after all the work that Bryce's commission and our own commission with Colin and myself and the others. It really did do a disservice to us. So it has to be picked up again by the parties, but also now with Brexit, by the British and Irish governments. But, but Monica, the, the definition of madness is continuing to do something which is not achieving the aim that you would like to achieve. We're all agreed around this table that we want to achieve better protection of human rights. We know by now that we were not succeeding in that aim by pushing the idea of a Bill of Rights. In fact, we're probably antagonising people, some people, particularly unionists perhaps, who are opposed to a Bill of Rights but might be very supportive of particular measures to protect rights. So protecting people with disabilities, as, as Colin referred to earlier, helping people who are poor, improving our health service, guaranteeing certain rights as regards education and housing, etc. All of those can be addressed on an issue-by-issue basis. And I would submit, submit that we're much more likely to achieve change if we proceed in that incremental and disc discreet way um, rather than going for the, the full-blown Bill of Rights. That's an interesting argument, Bryce, because you've been as much an activist as I have been. My activism has been around violence against women. And I actually remember the days when we first had to fight to get the domestic violence legislation introduced. 
we went forward on that legislation. We were ahead of the rest of the UK on it. And then we went backwards. And that can happen in relation to legislation and policy unless you have champions for those particular issues. And in fact, one might rightly ask in this very week that we're meeting, how much further have we come in relation to legislative policy and attitudinal change? I, th I do believe that there's a difference between legislation and a Bill of Rights. I do believe it's a very strong instrument. I, I do wish that everybody had the allegiance to it, but that's a political issue. And I think that's where the parties have to sit down now and deliberate on it, not use it as a stick to beat the other community with. And I do believe, most importantly, it was in the Good Friday Agreement. The people went to the country and said yes to something that was in that agreement. I'm not going to let the people down. There hasn't been a referendum since. No, no, you're, now, you're overstating it. Uh, you they, say, they, you're they, going to say that we were asked to scope out the advice. There was never a guarantee there'd be a bill. Of course I know that. Scope out the advice for what? Sit for 10 years and pretend that we're writing a series of sentences into a document and go home and sleep and say, oh, that was a great day's work. I didn't engage in that exercise thinking I was producing advice for nothing to come out the other end. I just think it's a weak argument to say we must have a bit of rights because the Good Friday Agreement said we had to have a Bill of Rights. The Good Friday Agreement did not say that. that let's nail, the, nail that lie. I want a Bill of Rights, but not because it was promised by the Good Friday Agreement. It wasn't promised. Could I just, I suppose two, two, two things I, just to highlight. I think first of all, I think there was clear, reasonable expectation that people would see a Bill of Rights emerge at the end of this process. I think it's perfectly legitimate to feel that because of the promises of peace that a Bill of Rights would emerge. And I think parallel to that, I think there's a sort of moral obligation on us all who, who toured this society in a way and spoke to people and created those expectations and talked to people about what this instrument, this constitutional instrument uh, would do. There's a sense, I feel, the weight of responsibility really to keep going, to keep making the argument and to not give up and to be, yes, more effective at making the argument. In a sense, it's good to see that that flame is still there, flickering though it is, it's still there. Yeah. But this, the second thing you just underlined, so there's the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. I think we do it a service here and it, it, it spans the lifetime of the Commission because there, the reason I am supportive of this also is because there are credible proposals on the table from here. This society, I am sick of this society being caricatured, right? Across a range of areas, across a range of areas, we have a library full of solutions that respect the complexity of our context. The Bill of Rights, pro the proposals are only one of those. People need to read that document. Mm. It is respectful of our context, but most importantly of all, it contains credible proposals that people around the world uh, talk about. So yes, there's a Good Friday Agreement argument, and I think there's a reasonable expectation and a moral obligation not to give up on that and not to give up on the people here. But also, I think, there are credible proposals that stand up 
on the table that can be taken forward, that we all can be proud of and that we all can get behind. But and and let me address, Bryce, I have to come back to you on this issue of process. The, the, the process. proposals that are on the table, which date from 2008, don't include two of the human rights issues which are most in contention in Northern Ireland at the moment, same-sex marriage. Your proposals, the proposals, did not say that gay people should be allowed to marry. It said they should be allowed to enter into civil partnerships. The proposals say that the Irish language should be promoted. It doesn't say that people who want to use Irish in official discourse should be allowed to do so. Uh, in the courts, for example, or in other public services. So that makes my point for, for me that, that once you put a list of rights on the table, it almost immediately becomes out of date. And, and your, the proposals also said that any further change to the Bill of Rights should be agreed by a cross-party vote in the Assembly. OK, can I pick you up on this? First, I would love you to tell that to the South Africans that their Bill of Rights isn't worth the paper and because it can be changed. I didn't quite say that. Well, that, that's where your argument would lead you. Tell that to Canadians. Tell that to the Americans. It can and it is a dynamic instrument and it can go to the people to be amended if it so needs to be and it has in other countries. Now, I want to go back out of content for a moment to process. We need to be very careful what we're telling people here. I sat as one of the negotiators at the Good Friday Agreement when we agreed a partitionist assembly, which is what nationalists and republicans would have seen it as, what section gave them the safeguards to go into that assembly? The very title suggests it. Safeguard was human rights. The previous to the Good Friday Agreement negotiations was the Downing Street Declaration, which was under John Major. And the parties went there and listed and put down the rights that they would like to see in the future. This wasn't a discussion that the Human Rights Commission suddenly picked out of the sky. This was handed down to us by people who were in a very divisive conflict. So from Downing Street through to the Good Friday negotiations, out the other side with those safeguards, and, by the way, written into the Assembly, a Legislative Assembly, there was a clause that any legislation in the future would adhere to the European Convention and the future Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Now, if they weren't serious about that, why would we have written that? The second thing, I was there, as was Colin and others, when they went back into further negotiations at St Andrews and at Hillsborough. In the appendix, in those further negotiations, it says, when the advice is completed, Westminster will lift it and legislate thereon. Now, if that was not about a serious attempt to say that one day we would have a Bill of Rights, then what's the point in sitting and negotiating these things in the first place? Just a few things. Part of the project working on the minute in terms of the, the Bill of Rights turning into legislation, I think it's absolutely clear it's a 10-year-old document. It was submitted in, in, in December 2000. Eight. We're coming up to the 10th anniversary of that. So I think there's clearly areas, and equal marriage is, is a very clear example of that, where the document needs to be updated. I think where there needs to be uh, some, some re rethinking language is another example. So I think that, 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 that's clear and I think that, 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 that's accepted. It's not an either or. I think you can have a constitutional framework document setting out uh, guarantees in relation to human rights and then they 
obviously will evolve as well in terms of statutory forms of regulation and more detailed prescriptive measures. The European Convention on Human Rights, if you like, is a list. Most uh, human rights instruments are lists. You got to have a list somewhere. The Irish along Constitution. Is, you know, so so that but that will evolve. But I think what what the Good Friday Agreement meant to people a lot of people, was a sense of which there were promises there, there were expectations there. And we're talking about the Bill of Rights. If only that was the only example of, of, of a thing that has stalled. I think there are a range of other examples too. But I don't think it's either or. I think you can have a secure constitutional framework recognising things as rights, as human rights, including socioeconomic protections, and also have more detailed forms of filling in in areas like education, uh, in areas like housing, in order to, to flesh out the details. And that will evolve over time, just like the European Convention on Human Rights evolves over time. I also like to be clear as well, that um, I don't see the Bill of Rights as you know the solution mm. to all the ills in society, N- not at all. But I think what it does is set out a secure constitutional framework of protections and guarantees for things that that are rights, not just sort of gifts or privileges or charitable giving, but actual rights that people hold. And then you take forward the governance structures in a post-conflict society here with that framework securely in place, with people feeling, with everyone here, feeling they're protected. And that's why I think we can move the conversation on to how do you embed that culture, which I think is even more important. And I think equally our political actors might have benefited had they been introduced at a very early age from school onwards. And some of my best days in the Human Rights Commission is when I went out to the primary schools and saw what the teachers were producing inside the curriculum. You know, I've always said here that maybe one of the reasons why we're still stalled is because there's never been a narrative of what caused our trouble. It was President Mandela said that when he took us to South Africa. He said, you people all have a different version of what caused this. And until you get an agreement on that, you'll never see your way through to a final solution in terms of resolving your conflict. And it struck me very forcibly that maybe we won't, but what we could agree on is our rights, our entitlements, because that gives you respect for the other side. I can't just have my rights without understanding and respecting your rights. And I think that culture that we could start embedding in our children from primary school to secondary school and indeed Bryce's own commission uh, led the way on that um, and we picked it up and um, I think that heartens me greatly today to see the amount of teachers and children that are coming through the next generation who unlike our current generation perhaps of which I was one of political actors really misunderstood each other when they started using this language and some saw it stick some saw it as carrot some were so despondent about the whole thing that they didn't want to re-engage and they haven't when Rice talks about the divisiveness, I genuinely believe as one of the people in that first assembly, I don't think we ever spent an hour talking about human rights or the Bill of Rights because it wasn't a devolved matter. And we were so busy trying to get the assembly and the governance arrangements settled. Never once did we talk about it. There was no ad hoc committee. There was no select committee. Indeed, there had first in the agreement been a proposal for a human rights and equality committee and it never was established. So the politicians never, ever got the chance to talk about what they would like to see. And perhaps that chance will come up, for the, maybe for different reasons, because of Brexit, or maybe because one day they now have come to the point of saying, well, I've got to meet your interests, you've got to meet mine, 
I've got to respect your rights, you have to respect mine. And that is the way, whether it's in the streets, in the villages or inside our own assembly, that I think we will move forward to a more stable society. So picking up on that theme of Brexit, I think one of the things that's really coming out of this conversation is that a Bill of Rights is really about progressing the human rights situation in Northern Ireland. But something that's coming out a lot in the Brexit discussions is that there's a fear that we're going to take a step back, that human rights protections are potentially going to be rolled back, depending on the way that the negotiations um, take place. Do you think that implementing a Bill of Rights could help to protect or curb this? Um, Do you think there's a role for, for the Bill of Rights to play within this context of Brexit? I think there is. Um, I don't think we should exaggerate it. I think um, a lot of people from the Remain camp, and uh, I speak as somebody who voted to Remain, are, are trying to convey the idea that leaving the European Union will be disastrous from a human rights point of view. I definitely don't think that's the case. We can, to the extent that certain EU protected rights will disappear, we can uh, replace them. And in fact, we've already, to some extent, replaced them, particularly in the field of anti-discrimination law and equality law, employment rights. We can continue to do that. In some respects, our, our rights on employment are better than elsewhere in the European Union and our equality laws to some extent are are better. Um, So I I would have confidence that our own um, legislators, whether in Northern Ireland or in London uh, or in Dublin, if it's the United Ireland, can can replicate in Northern Ireland uh, what what might be lost through Brexit. So I'm, I'm one of the the optimists in this Brexit debate. I think we have to be. It's going to happen and we must make the best of it and, and try and ensure that uh, things that we've gained are not are not lost. But I, I don't think that Brexit is going to be a disaster from a human rights point of view. I think leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the next thing on the Conservative Party's agenda, is a very serious and dangerous thing, but not Brexit. I would agree that it's the second part that is most worrying. But I think once you start down the Brexit road, you can then go in that direction. Because, um, you know, I'm constantly reminded that you don't have to remain in the European Union to be part of the European Convention. But look what happens to the countries that are outside of the European Union. They don't really take the Strasbourg jurisprudence that seriously. Um, And one of the things that has been a safety blanket for Northern Ireland has been the Strasbourg Court, uh, where we have, on a number of occasions, both commissions have taken cases all the way through there. Um, Will that be the case in the future? That is so open to a question. If the Brexiteers go to the next stage of saying the European Convention is not our convention. Now, we do have the Human Rights Act and they constantly, during our Commission's time, had to engage in giving evidence to many of the committees at the House of Commons on a British Bill of Rights. And we have the experience of knowing that that British Bill of Rights was a watering down of the Human Rights Act. So that would really, really concern me. Um, But it's a bigger question. We were meant to have the equivalency of rights. That was also written in as part of the Commission's mandate between the North and the South of Ireland in relation to a Charter of Rights, which is also outstanding and never been agreed. So does it leave the people on the Republic's side of the border? With the Irish government, the Irish constitution and its incorporation of the European Convention with stronger entitlements and us on this side of the border with different entitlements because of the fact that we're no longer inside Europe. 
The answer is the people don't know. And when we had signed off on that agreement, I was a very contented European because of the convention rights, but also because it was a bigger picture than just living in this tiny place that fought over its little space. And for me, that's where human rights comes in. And that's a real concern that we do not need to have this debate at this time. And until October comes and we come out the other side of that, whether it's on the constitutional issues in terms of the arrangements between the North and South, East and West, between us and Britain, which was all part of the agreement, and whether anybody gets around in the governments, in the negotiations, to discuss human rights and what it might do in terms of its impact, I very much doubt it, because most of the focus is on a border. I think in thinking about the Brexit question, first of all, would contextualise it in the, in the sense that I think we shouldn't forget, and it remains important no matter how many times we're told to, to move on here, that the idea of Northern Ireland being taken out of the European Union against its will is a, is, is a big thing for me. And, and, and the history of consent in this society has a complex history and context. But the fact that the response to that so far has been primarily hard work of thinking through practical solutions is also, and maybe against the grain at the moment in commentary, a great tribute to people in this society. Because um, you can imagine contexts where, let's say, the unionist community were being taken out of the United Kingdom against their consent. Um, and I think the response has been a tribute to people in the north and on this island because, by and large, people have reacted by rolling their sleeves up, thinking about solutions, trying to find ways out of the mess that the current Westminster government has yet again placed us in in relation to Brexit. And I think you can imagine in the past other responses to that, to be, to be frank. I think it's completely reopened the sovereignty fracture here that the Good Friday Agreement work so hard to mend. I think uh, there's a real, real uh, challenge at the moment in re-establishing the institutions in this society. I think unionism in this society uh, just tragically underestimated the compromise that the Republican and nationalist community undertook to, to work the institutions in the North. And I think Brexit has just thrown all that up in the air again. But what is really heartening to see is that the Irish government, people in this society, civil society, have worked really hard to, to mitigate, Bryce talked about madness earlier on, the madness coming out of Westminster government, the, the madness of, of where this is going. But people in this society have risen to the challenge, try to work hard to mitigate that, to argue and point out uh, some of the problems in it, and to highlight the human rights and equality deficits that will arise. And Amanda, you will know the project we're involved in, BrexitLawNI.org. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, have been pointing out some of the problems that will arise in relation to uh, Brexit, in relation to the substantive human rights and equality guarantees that will go, in 
and also the enforcement mechanisms that come with European Union law that don't exist in domestic UK law, that, that people are really, really going to miss. But again, as in other areas, the backstop solution that's been developed, other proposals that are on the table, are an attempt to try and say that this society should have a special arrangement, a special deal if you like, whatever you want to call it, so that we can have, to use the cliche of the moment, the best of both worlds, cake and eat it and all that and I think you know that's heartening to see that people are trying to think through solutions whether again London is listening to any solutions that we propose is is a, is a totally different matter now to answer your actual question which is about the Bill of Rights yes of course I think that every serious analysis that we've seen in relation to Brexit has highlighted the fact that this place could become in a rights and equality mess on the other side of Brexit. With all sorts of different categorizations, the re-emergence of treating people very differently depending on status, whatever, the equal citizenship guarantees that people have worked so hard to try and legislate for, sort of a coach and horse that's driven through all of that. So it seems to me that one obvious answer to that is to get back around the table and begin thinking about a Bill of Rights that speaks to both the equal citizenship rights protections that should be in place in this society, but also more importantly going forward, the human rights of everyone in this place. What's interesting is the two commissions currently and did under Bryce and under myself have to meet every quarter and their most recent work has been on this issue and they've produced a joint document on the Charter of Rights which would be impacted on if as a result of Brexit um, and they have of course produced as they should do a document that says what shall happen um, on those rights. I think that's a good way to proceed because they are statutory bodies. They are there to advise governments and that's what both of them are doing and should be doing right at this minute in advance of the October uh, final negotiations. Um, I think that is a very serious issue and in relation to the rights that are protected under the Charter and to which both governments have signed up and have to reflect back on what you said earlier. And, you know, nobody ever really has, you know, had nightmares over the Charter of Social and Economic Rights from the European Union. Um, in fact, they follow it very closely. Um, my concern in relation to Bryce, and I agree with him because we've campaigned and moved it, not always under the current Conservative administration, the rights on equality, uh, because they see it as too much regulation. It was to Europe that we looked to to bring forward that, and often it was imposed, um, which didn't really make the British government very happy, but it made me very happy because it gave me entitlements. I'm that old um, in relation to my rights as a woman, not to be discriminated against on the basis of my sex, and my rights to equal pay and my rights to having my job evaluated to equally to my two colleagues here. Those rights I'm not giving up easily. I fought pretty hard to get them. Um, and so that's the concern, is not to go back, not to regress. Every generation should be able to progress and should be able to hand on a baton of um, rights to their children and not to say, oh, isn't it terrible, son or daughter, that I grew up in an era when we had these things and you don't have them anymore. I think Monica raised an important point about like how many people know that there's a joint committee of human rights on the island of Ireland in relation to a bridge between the two commissions. I think it's been good to see that joint committee, in a sense, re-emerge 
um, that become more prominent in relation to uh, this issue and that has an important role and important voice in the conversation including of course in relation to the much debated Charter of Rights for the island of Ireland one of the implications of Brexit is going to be the two bits of the island potentially drifting apart further in relation to this notion of equivalence of agreement so in in a sense you know again it's to repeat you know the Brexit brings the Bill of Rights the Charter of Rights from the island back onto the table again I think so just maybe to kind of round out this discussion, I think there is this general sense that some people have that in this age where we see things like people like Trump rising to power and these really extreme discourses of um, putting particular people's human rights first, entering the mainstream where we have organizations like Britain First kind of combating this idea that everyone should have equal access to human rights. What do you what do you see for the, the prospect of human rights more generally in this context of Brexit and Trump and Britain First? Uh, I'm very disturbed by those very public um, statements that are made by people I think who should know better whether they're heads of government or presidents and we've seen the terrible things that are happening from the Philippines um, with you know just the attacks on people to the point of massive murder um, and people not feeling they can be held accountable either through things like the International Criminal Court um, or indeed um, in the current administration by the European Court or in the United States um, by the United Nations. Those international bodies, institutions, instruments were all introduced for good reason. Um, probably because we most remember the Holocaust and the Second World War and what happened when a um, particular party uh, led by a particular individual known as Hitler decided that his attitudes were the right ones and it was good enough to eliminate people. Um, and no one ever believed that that was going to be the outcome. Um, I'm not saying that that's going to be the outcome currently, it would be disastrous. But you know, just last night there was a tax here in Belfast, there was leaflets issued um, to ethnic minorities to get out of their area. It's quite shocking and we should be standing up and our leaders should be standing up and challenging that. They belong here, they were born here and whether they came first or after, I do not care. And we heard that from Australia. And we also heard in Ireland who was here first. What a shocking debate to have around human beings. Human beings have human rights. And those rights go because they're human. And I think we need to go back to first principles on that. I think the current era is, it's possible to be very, very disheartened and despairing about what we're seeing around the world. The rise of authoritarian leaders and authoritarian solutions to complex human problems. But in some ways, perhaps, this is all... If any of us were complacent, and I'm not saying anybody was, that it's shaken people out of a sense of complacency, that human rights aren't about abstract laws or reports, they're about you and I working together to try and build a a better society and as Monica said built on a rather simple idea that all human beings have human rights including human rights being in the title so for me yes it's possible to 
to, to be depressed or despairing, but that just means we need to be more effective, we need to be organised, we need we never were, but we need to be uh, shake people out of a sense of complacency. You can have the best constitution, you can have the best Bill of Rights in the world, and it's meaningless in practice for people, unless you have a culture of respect for human rights out there on the ground, where people mobilise around them. I think what was heartening about the Brexit debate in an interesting way is civil society actors and others have made sure that human rights and equality have stayed just about on the table during those Brexit conversations, when many people would try and sweep them off the table, so they're still very much there. And we've seen that in other parts of the world, anywhere where anybody stands up to give voice to a very simple idea that every human being in this society regionally and globally has human rights is, you know, standing up for human rights and standing against sort of simple authoritarian solutions to complex human problems. I agree with what Colin has just said there. I think the idea of human rights is is here to stay. It's becoming ever more international. Uh, Whatever President of America or the Prime Minister of the UK or the President of Russia might do or say, the international community is bigger than all of them put together. And I think um, people power in, in this era of social media is such that we can achieve great change in society, witness the the um, obtaining of same-sex marriage in, in the Republic. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the upcoming referendum in the, in the South on, on abortion, uh, but it could, it could could go well. Could could well go in in favour of greater rights for women in that in that context, um, and in the the Me Too campaign and other other uh, such campaigns that have developed recently, there is a basis of that uh, in, in that a basis of respect for human beings and that in that instance women, um, and that that is the criterion against which the the the, the right of, of such people to dignity, etc., uh, and respect is the is the the basis on which we we, we measure people's um, behaviour. So the, 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 the strength of the idea of human rights is such that it will win the day. And I would finish by saying that we should remain optimistic. We've come too far not to be. And I think that um, it is really important to see those campaigns, to hear those voices, to embed that culture. Um, to me, my life has been about moving around from civil rights to women's rights to human rights, and we have come a long way, and I'm very happy to say we have embedded a great deal, and I think we can only go forward from here. Great. Um, it's nice to end one of these conversations, particularly since we've referenced Brexit on a positive note. Um, so I think we can maybe end this with a call to action <laughs> that people need to be embracing of these kinds of of ideas and that we need to push forward um, with human rights and with progressing our human rights, particularly in the context of Northern Ireland. So thank you all very much for joining us today. This was a really interesting conversation. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Amanda Kramer and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thank you to our guests, Colin, Bryce, and Monica. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in our show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I am Amanda. This was LawPod.